Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we'll be in Galatians 5 this morning. <clears throat> and we left off last week after looking at verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 5. Uh, I will review what we covered last week, but let me pray first. Lord, thank you for a place to gather, albeit uh, an increasingly warm one. Um, please help us to focus on the things for which we have uh, reasons to be grateful. Over these next few minutes, as we look into your word, Jesus, we just ask that you would send your spirit on all of us as I speak um, and, and all of us as we listen. Otherwise, um, this will just be a big waste of time. So please be here. Please uh, speak because we're listening and we want to hear from you. We need the encouragement of your word for our souls um, that we might walk with you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Um, last week, I started off by uh, talking about and defining what the Bible means when it says the flesh, uh, which probably for most of us, it seems kind of obvious, right? And the longer that you live on this planet and contend with your flesh, the more familiar you become with what exactly God means by the flesh, because it's constantly in a state of uh, decay and disobedience to your preferences. You just kind of know. But uh, what I said was because of the fall of mankind into sin, our desires uh, and our, our pursuits and our preferences are all corrupted because our very nature is corrupted. The way God made us, the way God designed us is not the way that we function in a sin-fallen world. We don't work the way we're supposed to because in Adam, everything is broken, including us and all of our default settings. Um, when the Bible says, the flesh, especially in the New Testament, what's, what's in view is that fallen, sinful nature that we have. It's not so much a reference to your skin or your muscles or your organs or all of the connective tissue uh, beneath. Then we saw that through justification, we are given the verdict of an obedient person. God declares that you are righteous, which means you are not guilty of whatever sin you walked into his judgment room with because that guilt of that sin is taken from you and put on Christ who was crucified. After you're declared righteous by God through justification, you are then adopted by God and given the rights of his children. So, through justification and adoption, our legal status changes. We are not guilty, and we are children of God. That's what we covered in the first part of Galatians' high view, right? 
Sanctification is the process by which we are given the nature of God's children. Justification and adoption give us the rights. Sanctification gives us his nature. So sanctification initially is positional. God, at first, when you're saved, positions you as a child of his. And you know this because your view of God transforms when you are saved. Instead of even just acknowledging that he is God and that he has the right to judge you, which would be almost sufficient, what happens is you view him not as the righteous judge, but as your loving father. That's what positional sanctification does for you. You become a child of God, and thus your view of him becomes that of his child, rather than a view of him as judge or enemy. John 1, 11, 12, and 13 says, He came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So not all human beings are God's kids, but those who by faith embrace Christ and turn away from sin are. We have the rights of children. This is the miracle of positional sanctification. What we're now enduring, once you've been positionally sanctified, what we're now enduring is the agonizingly slow process of practical sanctification. We're now in the midst of a process by which we are becoming more and more and more through the passage of time and the events of our lives, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. There's a difference between positional and practical sanctification. One happens in an instant, the other happens over time. So John says in 1 John, eh, we're not what we're going to be yet, but we're not what we used to be either, right? There's a process unfolding, and you know that it has occurred because you see God not just as creator and judge, but because you see him as your father. If God conferred on us the rights of children, but never the nature of children by positionally sanctifying us, we would be little more than house pets in the kingdom of God. I think my dog appreciates when we feed and water her, but we don't have a great depth of relationship with her where we can talk to her about how things are going and what her plan is for the day. We're not house pets in the Father's house. We are children who relate to him as such. We cry out, Abba, Father. And what I suggested to you last week is that there is no possible way for you to receive God's justification, God's adoption, and God's sanctification, and then use the freedom he has given you to pursue the evil from which he has rescued you. You cannot do that. It's not possible to do that. This is why Paul writes, you were called to freedom, brothers, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So those who have been positionally sanctified, that is repositioned from being God's enemies to being his children, incorporated into his family, simply will not 
blatantly, flagrantly, flippantly sin against him. It's not an option. We can't do that because that would be to belligerently behave as though we were still his enemies. Well, we're not. We've been given the nature of children. So we don't behave like God's enemies anymore. Rather, what we do is through love, we serve one another. That's the argument that Paul makes. Now, the moment we cover that ground, The instant that I say, you cannot have the nature of a child of God and behave like a a slave of sin. The moment I say that, what happens to us is we, we, we flee from licentiousness. We go, oh yeah, that's a good point. I can't live as though I am without self control or law. So we flee from license right into legalism. That's what we do. Hence the ping-ponging back and forth between those two errors that I've described over the weeks past. So the last thing we saw was this. Jesus made it clear that his purpose was never to destroy or abolish the law. His purpose was to fulfill it. So you are no longer underneath it. Positionally, if you are not a child of God, you are here under the law. If you have been positionally changed to a child of God, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. However, the law now serves a new role. Instead of being over you, it is on either side of you, serving you and protecting you from the errors of legalism and licentiousness. The law, rather than your taskmaster, becomes your servant. Let me quickly say all of that again. We are children of God now, and as such, we cannot slavishly obey the lusts of the flesh. Amen? Amen. Neither are we slaved into obedience to the law. So we're not in obedience to the flesh and its lusts. We're not in slavish obedience to the law. We are saved into relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we have freedom there. We can walk and talk with God as his beloved children. His law serves to protect us from making shipwreck of our faith. That's what it does. So this week, what we're going to do is continue to address the common potential error of liberty, which is licentiousness, by looking beyond positional sanctification into practical sanctification. So Galatians 5, beginning at verse 15 If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Well, why would we bite and devour one another? What a strange thing for Paul to say all of the sudden in the midst of talking about all of these other wonderful truths. Why does he suddenly turn to talking about biting and devouring one another? I don't, I mean... I don't think I have to, to this audience, I don't think I have to talk about how easy it is when you have right doctrine to view those who don't have right doctrine as somehow lesser than you, right? Not, I mean, we're Baptists. We know what's up. We know we're right. And we feel like a little bit of pity for all of the other denominations 
who are so wrong. Maybe that's what Paul means. That we should have this, this ecumenical view of all other churches and all other religions. Just get along with everybody. Coexist. Maybe that's what he's talking about. We don't want to bite and devour one another, so we better just put up with everything and pretend like we're all brothers and sisters. We are the world. We are the children. We're the ones who make a brighter day, so let's start living. There's a choice we're making. (laughs) Or... Maybe the reason that Paul brings this up is because what people in either chasm, legalism or licentiousness, do is bite and devour one another. I mean, how easy is it when when someone else has the freedom to enjoy something you don't have the freedom to enjoy? How easy is is it for you to judge them and begin to find things wrong with them? Or when you have the freedom and they don't? to begin to feel insecure about the freedom that you have and thus look upon them with distaste. Well, take care that you aren't consumed by one another. It's almost like Paul's waving them off because he goes, hey, if y'all want to chew each other up, just make sure you aren't consumed. Don't go too far. (laughs) If a significant portion of your emotional and intellectual energy is spent identifying how wrong someone else's Christianity is, you may be in danger. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he's saying. And believe me, that one stings me most of all. Uh, I'm not going to go into any details on why. I'm just going to say let's commit as a church to avoiding Christian cannibalism. I know the wounds that many of you have suffered. I know the lies that are out there about me. I know the lies that are out there about many of you. But here's practical sanctification point one. Look at Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay, the king ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Now, listen, I understand this is where the disconnect happens. Right there. You read everything up to that point and you were like, ah, that's a little convicting, right? Ah, I've been forgiven so much. I should be nicer. I should be more forgiving. The disconnect happens where you get to the point where you're choking out the person who's injured you. 
and they start pleading for mercy. The reason there's a disconnect is because we don't ever get the satisfaction of choking them out and making them plead for mercy. We have the fantasy, the anger fantasy of choking them out and them pleading for mercy, but we don't get to experience it. Well, I think it must be that Jesus doesn't expect us to get to the point where we're physically choking someone out but that he's illustrating what's going on in our hearts, right? So elsewhere in Luke 7, 47, he says this. Listen, this is so important and it's so easy to remember. This is what Jesus says. He who is forgiven little loves little. Practical sanctification you cannot take the freedom that God has given you in Jesus Christ and use it as a cudgel to beat someone else to death. You cannot use the freedom that God has given you in Jesus Christ and use it as a noose to choke someone else to death. If you have freedom from bondage to sin, if you've been positionally moved out from under the law and you are under grace, the way that you will view every other sinner, every other filthy transgressor on the planet is somebody who is potentially able to receive and enjoy the same blessing of grace that you have. Whatever they do against you. Now, does this mean we just wink at sin and pretend it didn't happen? No. But sanctification means always bearing in mind that what we have in Christ is all of grace. It's all of grace. I didn't earn a bit of it. I just asked and he gave it. So the way we ought to deal with others yeah. graciously. Well, how do we do that? Let's keep going. Verse 16, Galatians 5. I say, walk by the Spirit. There's nothing worse than actually not being asleep in church and doing something that makes it seem as though you were, like your iPad slips out of your lap. I don't know. That, I'm not saying he would, but in my mind, I'd be like trying to figure out a way to communicate to the preacher that I was awake. Just say like the last two sentences back or something like that. I know you were awake. I looked at you like a minute ago. You're good. I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Oh, okay. What does that mean? Walk by the Spirit. Well, if you ask our charismatic brothers and sisters, it means that during worship, you should be fully extended. (laughs) Speaking in tongues, slain in the Spirit. There's a story I heard I can't remember who told this. I don't think it was R.C. Sproul. I think it was, um, there's a pastor in Nevada named Brian Borgman, and I'm pretty sure it was him that told this story about a lady uh, who, in order to walk by the Spirit, would wake up in the morning and would not do anything until she felt that the voice of God had told her to do it. So then the result of this was sometimes she would finally emerge from her 
bedroom at two, three in the afternoon wearing, you know, a stocking on this leg, but no shoe and no stocking on this leg, but a shoe. Um, maybe her hair was done. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe she ate. Maybe she didn't. Maybe she was clothed. Maybe she wasn't. It just like, because unless the spirit told her, she didn't do it. That's ridiculous. We must not, we must not interpret walk by the spirit to mean that, but we do certainly want the spirit to have influence over the way we conduct ourselves day to day, right? Because I don't want to gratify the desires of the flesh. I do want to walk by the spirit. So even though the interpretation of walk by the spirit has taken on so many different ideas over the past 2000 years, we can understand this, I think, to mean practical sanctification by grace through faith. I am resisting the temptation to give in to my baser instincts and satisfy myself. Does that work? I'll make it simpler. By grace, through faith, I am resisting the temptation to glorify and satisfy myself. Because I'm in communion with God and in fellowship with God, I am resisting the leftovers of my fallen nature. Does that work? Yes. All right. You all liked that one. Let's review. The error of license and the error of legalism will both lead to gracelessness, gracelessness in our conduct and our attitude towards other people. Hence, Paul says in last week's sermon, Verse 14. The whole law is fulfilled in love your neighbor. So if I'm in license or I'm in legalism, you'll know because there will be a gracelessness about the way I conduct myself. If we are biting and snipping at other sinners, it's always an indication that we're losing sight of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. I will tend to make a big deal about myself to whatever degree I have lost sight of the kindness of God toward me in justification. I will tend to make a big deal about myself to whatever degree I have lost sight of the kindness of God toward me in justification. Fathers, what does that look like? Well, yesterday it looked like I had been argued with by teenagers enough and invoked four-letter words in my response. I have lost sight of the kindness and the grace that I've been shown in Christ Jesus. So now I conduct myself in a petty, snippy way toward other sinners. How dare you transgress my sovereign will? You want to be able to look at someone else with mercy in your heart. You want to be able to treat another sinner with kindness and graciousness, even though they've hurt you. Well, stop and take a glance at what Christ has done for you. If we walk by the Spirit 
in fellowship, in communion with our Father who loves us, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Our lives will be marked by a corresponding graciousness towards even those who injure us. I know you're having trouble standing up right now under the load of guilt that I am heaping on you over the attitude of your heart. But if you will just stop being preoccupied with your own glory, I assure you, the Savior invites you to lay that burden down. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah. Communion with God, who measures the universe in the span of his hand. I mean, that has a humbling effect, doesn't it? I'm going to commune with the one who looks at everything and it's this big to him. Okay? Now my britches aren't quite so big. It has a humbling effect. Simple, easy. I don't nitpick or criticize or attack others because I am in communion with God. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's what it means. If I am in relationship, in communion with my Heavenly Father, I am less able to give in to every whim that my flesh has. That makes sense. Does that make sense? (laughs) I mean, God couldn't make this any easier to understand. We are kind even to our enemies as a result of God's justifying, adopting love for us. So what I'm saying is effect, cause. The effect, I'm nice. The cause, I'm walking with God. Simple. So why are we all just a tad bit uncomfortable? Well, verse 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and oh my gosh, it's hot in here. And the (laughs) desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Let me read that again. The desires of the flesh are against the capital S spirit. The desires of the capital S spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If the spirit in you is at ease with sin, it is not the Holy Spirit. I did not say if you have remaining sin, you don't have the Holy Spirit. It's not what I said. I said, if the spirit within you is at ease with sin, it's not the Holy Spirit. The only principle we've even glanced at this morning is love for others. Like the list that Paul's about to get into, I'm not even going to touch it today. Just be nice. Right? That's it. And already we're we're all kind of going, oh, man, I am not good at this. The only point that I've really made is the simple cause and effect point. Because God loves me, cause, I'm nice to people. I love others, effect. And that observation alone is enough to make a Christian wonder in their heart, 
Am I even saved? Because you may love some people, but there are also some people for whom you're reserving a noose and a cudgel. So thank God for verse 17. Let's be sure we understand it. Romans 7. Oh, man. Um, Romans 7, 14. I'm going to read a little bit, talk a little bit. I'm going to try to go quick because it's not getting any cooler in here, right? (laughs) Romans 7, 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul is teaching about remaining corruption. I'm saved by grace through faith. And so I'm no longer under bondage to sin, but I still have my fleshly nature. That's what he's saying. Okay. 15. For I do not understand my own actions. What I do not, what, (laughs) for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Amen. Right? Like we understand this. I don't, do what I want to do. 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. What? So I agree with God in my heart about what is right and wrong, but often you wouldn't know it by looking at my actions. That's the Bible is describing you to yourself in frank terms. It's almost as though God knew You were going to have these struggles and this disconnect between what you know is the ideal and what you experience as the real. So I agree with God in my heart about what's right and wrong, but you'd never know it by, or you'd often not know it by looking at my actions. 17. So it's no longer I who do it. It's not my fault. Nope. Just kidding. That's not what he means. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. Ah, The fallen nature, remaining sin, leftover corruption. Nothing good in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's not really me doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul is not absolving himself of responsibility, nor should you. He's saying, even though I'm changed and I'm renewed and I'm a child of God, I still have these carnal, sinful desires. 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I simultaneously want to do what's pleasing to God and please my corrupt flesh. At the same time, wretched man, 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul is not saying, 
Paul is not saying we are dual natured. We have one nature, human nature. That's what we've got. And it's what we're going to have until this vessel finally goes, "Ah," and I move on to the life to come. What he is saying is that Christians are dual desired. Instead of one desire, which you used to have when you were positionally under the law, one desire to serve yourself, you now have that leftover desire and this new desire implanted by grace through the work of the Holy Spirit to be pleasing to God. You have both. These desires are at war with one another. Galatians 5, 17. Desires of the flesh are against the spirit. and The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Licentiousness removes the warfare. That's the problem with it. Licentiousness says it doesn't matter how you conduct yourself because you're not under the law. So what difference does it make? I shouldn't be like that. But that's in my own mind. That's how I see myself. Licentiousness demands the rights of the child while refusing to have the nature of the child. That's the problem with this error. Licentiousness is your kid. Let's make it the one you like. (laughs) Your kid opening on Christmas morning, the brand new PlayStation or like whatever, expensive gift. They open it, they look at it, they chuck it as hard as they can against the wall, and then they start screaming at you because it's broken. That's licentiousness. Licentiousness is your kid demanding to touch the hot stove and then screaming at you when they get blistered. That's licentiousness. Licentiousness is you claiming to be a child of God but not giving a rip what God takes pleasure in. You cannot do that. Now, can you have remaining corruption? Yes. Can you want in the same time in your heart to be loving God and pleasing him and doing things you know you ought not be doing? Yes. That's not licentiousness. That's just reality in a sin-fallen world. Christianity is warfare. I honestly, genuinely, from my heart, do want to be pleasing to God. And not because I'm afraid of him. Not, not, not slavish, fearful behavior modification. That's legalism. I want to be pleasing to God because I like him. I like talking with him and walking with him. And guess what? If you're walking and talking with God, there's some other things you're probably not going to be doing right in that moment. I genuinely, from the heart, want to be pleasing to God, but I constantly do the opposite. And then I can't really enjoy my sin because I don't like it that much, but neither can I completely forsake it. What's the solution? Galatians 5, 16, and 18. So we'll just take out 17 for a minute. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, and you are not 
under the law. What is the spirit leading you in? Think. What is the spirit leading you in? Yeah. Yeah. Communion, fellowship, relationship with God. You should be pouring your little heart out to him. That's walking by the spirit. We'll get into Paul's list next Sunday. (laughs)